Good morning. Thanks so much for tuning in to the live stream. The Lord chose to reveal to the Apostle Paul wonderful truths about the church. In his last letter, Paul wrote from prison to a young pastor named Timothy so that the church would always have God's truth to follow as they pursued his purposes as the church. And one thing Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 was, preach the word. The truth is that Christians need to hear God's word preached in the setting of the church gathering for worship. Why is that? Well, the goal of preaching is the glory of God. It's the glory of God in the gospel, God's word. And God's people rejoice when they hear God's word, and it brings glory to God. It reflects his glory. And so preaching should always be central to the gathering of the church. Preach is, a, is from the Greek word that means to herald in the first century They didn't have radio and television and the internet, so they would have guys go out, heralds, who would make public announcements. And Paul uses that word to say that preaching is to be a part of the worship service of a local church. He he thinks of preaching as heralding done in the power of the Holy Spirit. The preacher proclaims God's word, hopefully with joy and rejoicing. Hopefully the preacher is worshiping as he preaches, as the word is unpacked and applied to the congregation. The preacher worships, he proclaims with spirit-given truth and spirit-given passion. It's powerful. It, has, it should have a powerful effect on the congregation, at least in Paul's mind. There's something that happens in the souls of the members of a church when they come together and they, they hear God's word preached. And so Paul tells young Timothy, preach the word. There's an, there's an expectation in all the New Testament that the church will gather and central to that gathering will be the preached or proclaimed word, mostly about Christ and Him crucified and risen from the dead. This word is the treasure of the Christian community of the church. It's a community event. It's, a, it's the highlight of the week. You hear us say that. It's alive in the fellowship of believers God has established this proclamation to build our faith, to give us joy, to help us in the good fight of faith. John Piper says, listening to preaching in the context of the church gathered for worship is a critical tool in our fight for joy in Christ. He says this in his book, When I Don't Desire God, God calls us to enjoy the blessing that comes to us when the word of the cross explodes in the heart of a godly preacher and overflows in exultation to the minds and hearts 
of a worshiping people. The fight for joy loses one of its weapons when it doesn't regularly hear the gospel preached. God can make it up to us in other ways, but preaching is one precious gift of God to the church. He tells us about the effect of Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching on a young J.I. Packer. You may be a fan of Dr. Packer. He recently went to be with the Lord, but John Piper tells about the effect that Lloyd-Jones' preaching had on him. He heard Lloyd-Jones preach every Sunday night in the 1940s in London at Westminster Chapel. He said he had never heard preaching like this. It came to him with the force of an electric shock. He said it, it brought at least to him a sense of God. He was through that preaching that he discovered the greatness of God and the greatness of the soul. So you don't want to miss the meeting. You don't want to miss the preaching. You don't want to neglect meeting together with the church because of the effect of preaching. Now I'm saying all this when we can't gather. <laughs> we can't have a normal meeting together. It's a good, it's a good Sunday morning to remember God's mercy, isn't it? God is merciful. And He can supply our needs when we aren't able to gather and experience the kind of preaching moment that Paul had in mind in 2 Timothy 4 when he was writing to Timothy. Certainly that's been the, our experience this year, God's mercy in the midst of a season when often We've had to hear sermons preached via live stream. God can meet us through preaching, I believe, via live, live stream. I think that's happened this year through His grace. He can meet us in a podcast. These are not the same as the living voice in the context of the church gathered together, the community of the church, but they're good. And God can make himself known powerfully through them. So we're going to turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 3. Please turn there with me. And I'm going to attempt to preach God's word via live stream. First, though, I want to pray. Father, I do believe in your mercy. And so I ask you this morning, Lord, have mercy, have mercy so that the preaching of your word has the effect that Paul had in mind on the members of our congregation. I ask you to do that, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3, we'll read verses 7 through 10. Of this gospel, Paul's been talking about and unpacking the word about Christ, 
him crucified and risen. And now he says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints. And he says that because he persecuted the church. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring delight for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This is God's inerrant, infallible, inspired word. The church is unique. Nothing else can do what the church is called to do. Paul describes his calling in terms of a purpose that God has had throughout eternity. But it's been hidden in previous ages. It's now being made known in different ways, but especially through his ministry. Verse 8, to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? In the New Testament, the word mystery is used in a different way than we tend to think of it. Paul doesn't have Sherlock Holmes in mind. He's not thinking about a game of clue and trying to figure out if Professor Plum did it with the candlestick in the library. This isn't a first century whodunit. Mystery is the New Testament word for a secret that's been hidden for ages. God knew the secret. No one else knew the secret. But now it's being revealed. It's, that's a mystery, a New Testament mystery. That's what Paul says. It's been hidden, but it's been revealed to me. He's talking about the church, Jews and Gentiles now make up the people of God. That's a revelation, a truth about the church. Now they are in fellowship. It's a mystery. It's now revealed. Our main point today, I want our congregation to be encouraged. I believe you have this, but I want to encourage a biblical conviction about the church I want, to, I want you to have a compelling vision of the, of the church that motivates you and inspires you to invest your life in God's purposes in the church. And these are truths about God, God's church. I want to talk today about why we love the church and why we need the church. First of all, why does Jesus love the church? Well, he loves the church because he ob obtained the church through his death on the cross. Luke records Paul's last meeting with the elders of this church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. 
The last words he says to them, he says to these pastors who are there, who are responsible for the church he's writing to in Ephesians 3, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The blood of Christ has made the church God's precious treasure. He loves the church. And because of our love for him, this is reason enough to love the church. But there are many compelling reasons for loving the church. We've talked about one. We hear the truth of God in the church. In his first letter to Timothy, Paul called the church the household of God. He said, it's the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We love the church because it's the place for truth. It holds up the good news about Jesus Christ. A missiologist who's like a theologian for missionaries or about missions named Stephen Neal, he said this, theologically, we missionaries and missiologists have been discovering anew that the church is not an appendage to the gospel. It's itself a part of the gospel. The gospel cannot be separated from the new people of God in which its nature is to be made manifest. So, you know, missionaries sometimes over the centuries have gotten away from this truth about the centrality of the church in the purposes of God. And this missiologist says, we've been discovering this afresh, and he's adjusting missionaries. We can't do missions without the church. It's unique. Individuals, individual believers are dwelt with the Spirit as the temples of God, but only the church is the body of Christ. The church alone is the fullness of him who fills all in all. And Paul says here, back in verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is now being made known to the rulers and authorities in, a hev in heavenly places. Has it ever jumped out to you as you've read this? That the place where God makes known his wisdom is in the church? All our lives, we have to trust that God is what? He's powerful, He's in control, He's sovereign. The circumstances in our lives are not, we're not victims of chance. We believe He's in control, He's sovereign. And so we have to trust in His wisdom. And sometimes we're going to be tempted to doubt whether He's really wise, aren't we? Because of our circumstances. William Cooper was a hymn writer during the 18th century in England when the Holy Spirit was poured out and there was great revival. And he, he was a Christian, but he battled despair. He attempted suicide a number of times. But he wrote wonderful hymns, deep and rich hymns. He, he wrote a number of them with his more well-known friend and his pastor and mentor, a man that really cared for him, the converted slave trader, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. Cooper understood the problem we often have with the wisdom of God. He discovered this in God's Word. We can't see it. 
And he sings about it in his hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. You know this hymn. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. He learned this from Psalm 77. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. It's biblical truth. The truth is we can't see footsteps in the sea. And when God rides on the storm, we can't see him. He's hidden from us. And we're left to wonder just what God's plan is. What's he doing? Is he really wise? Is he really good? Is he loving? And, and Paul is saying, is there anywhere we can look to see his wisdom, where he demonstrates his wisdom? Is there a place we can point to and say, I, I see his wisdom clearly displayed there. I don't understand what he's doing in, in my life, but I know he's perfectly wise because I see his wisdom. Paul says that place is the church. If you look at the church, it's where you see his wisdom clearly displayed. Sinclair Ferguson says this, the church is a theater in which God portrays the drama of his wisdom so clearly that the rulers and authorities cannot mistake it. The church, he says, is like a microscope. As we see God bringing it into being, we recognize his wisdom. What we can't discern with the naked eye in our own lives we can see living and active in the church. We can see the wisdom of God. The church is a living fellowship. It's a monument that God has built and is building to his wisdom. And if we'll look, we'll see how wonderful his wisdom is. We'll see he is perfectly wise. It'll build our faith when we're when we're doubting, when we're tempted to doubt, we can see him actively working in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ and we'll continually and repeatedly see over time he's wise. It's why we love the church. It's a staggering statement here in verse 10 and 11 that he is going to, through the church, show the rulers and authorities in heavenly places the manif his manifold wisdom. It, it's his eternal purpose. It's multicolored wisdom. It's like a rainbow. He doesn't co color with one color. He uses all the colors. It's beautiful. It's, it's wonderful, his dealings with his people in the church. He's, he's at work. He's doing something very, very special in the church. And we need to know this. There are many biblical metaphors in the New Testament for the church, God's flock. The church is God's flock. It's God's body. Peter says it's his building. It's, a, it's being built up. People are kind of the bricks of this building, the church. And Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone, which is where our name comes from. 
Paul says the church is God's family. It's God's household. It's a, it's a, it's a vision of Christianity that goes beyond the individual, doesn't it? It's more than me. I'm called to be a part of something bigger than me. I often hear people say they have to do what's best for their family. I couldn't agree more. But I don't think we should ever use that as an excuse to do something that isn't best for God's family. Makes sense, doesn't it? Spiritual common sense. Yes, do what's best for your family. That should not ever be in conflict with God's family. If you do what's best for God's family, it is going to be best for your family. If you make the interests of God's family your own interests, your family is going to experience the good of God's blessings. We love the church because it's his family. It's his household. As much as we love the church, and I think one of the reasons and something that points us to how special the church is to God is as much as we love the church, Satan hates the church. 2 Corinthians 4 says, in the case of unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And Satan uses all his devices to keep people from seeing the light of the gospel the glory of Christ. And he focuses attacks, his attacks on the church because that's where the gospel is. That's the purpose of the church. It has the word of God, the truth about Jesus Christ, him crucified and risen from the dead. So Satan uses all his devices and he attacks the church. He hates the church. He has from the beginning. It's where the gospel is. You know, often people seem perplexed. There are problems in the church. And the, the, the church is a group of sinful people, justified sinners, and Satan hates the church. And he is attacking the church with everything he's got. I mean, we should be amazed that the church exists. It's, it's a display of his power and his wisdom and his love and his goodness that there even is a church today. Notice the audience, though, that the Lord displays his wisdom to through the church. It's... It's the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This includes angels, good, good rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Peter says that in the church, there are things going on that angels long to look at. They see his wisdom in the church. These rulers and authorities, these angelic beings, they learn about God's wisdom as they watch the church. But certainly Paul has in mind also the spiritual forces of evil we read about in Ephesians 6. You can, you can turn over there quickly. Verse 12, you're probably familiar with this verse. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers. Surely who he's talking about too in Ephesians 3, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers 
over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. God's plan is that his manifold wisdom be made known to these evil rulers and authorities in heavenly places. They will see his wisdom in the church. We love the church because it's central to what God is doing to redeem this world. Look over in Acts 2. I want to conclude by talking about why we need the church. Why we need the church. Acts chapter 2. I became a pastor a few years after the Lord saved me because of a compelling vision that I captured from Scripture. The, the biblical doctrine the teaching, the truth about the church captured my heart. I saw that this church is at the center of God's purposes in the, in the world. It's the key to history. You can't understand Christianity unless you understand that at the heart of it lies the church. It's His work. We aren't just a voluntary association of people. A church isn't a club, not just another organization. It has an organizational element to it, but it's more than that. And in the book of Acts, we learn that Christians began immediately to gather on Sunday and not on the Jewish Sabbath Saturday. Sunday was and is the Lord's Day. Their worship service was a gathering around the risen Christ. He rose from the dead on Sunday, and it was a celebration. The Lord's Day, the church would gather. It was a celebration about all that had become possible because he died and rose from the dead. Theologian David Wells says, every church service is in fact an Easter service. When the church gathers on the Lord's day, the risen Christ is present. Listen to Acts 2. Read with me, beginning in verse 42. They devoted themselves, the early church, the beginnings of the church, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every Soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Few texts after I was converted inspired me more about the church and led me to a new love of the church than this text. I'm sure it did for many of you. Here is a compelling vision of the church, but notice that Luke's emphasis is on. The presence of the Lord. The people are gathered together. The scriptures are being taught. There's rich fellowship, meaningful fellowship. It's attractive. Brothers and sisters in Christ, just together in unity. They're sharing meals together. They're breaking bread. Indicates meals together, but also celebrating the Lord's Supper. They're praying continually. But most importantly, Luke records all. Oh, came on every soul. Why was that? Because God was present. 
God was present. And when God is present, it is awesome. I save that word for God. Jerry Bridges told me to do that, and I still do that. So I will never say to you, hey, that's awesome. I might say that's wonderful, but I won't say it's awesome. I reserve it for the presence of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean you have to do that, but Jerry Bridges told me to do it, and I do what I'm told. These activities that these guys are doing in Acts 2, they're not like agenda meetings at a business, agenda items at a business meeting. It's very different. The activities of the church are empowered by the presence of the risen Christ. David Wells, again, the theologian, says, unless God's Holy Spirit enables worship, sermons fall flat, prayers are mechanical, the Lord's Supper's merely a rite, fellowship is just proximity, and the church is only an association. What stands out is Christ is present. And when Christ is present, through His Spirit, it is powerful. Some of you may remember 1968. You have to be kind of old to do that, but you may remember 1968. It was a difficult year in the United States. Many people are comparing this year to that year. Because in both years, there were calls for change, there, were, there was political uncertainty and unrest. I was only eight years old, but I, I have memories of assassinations and unrest. John Piper writes in his book, Desiring God, he says this, the mood in the late 60s was inhospitable to the local church. I can remember walking the streets of Pasadena on Sunday mornings in the fall of 1968, wondering if there was any future for the church. Like a fish doubting the worth of water or a bird wondering about the reason for wind and air. It was a precious work of grace that God rescued me from that folly that is there any future for the church? And gave me a home with the people of God at Lake Avenue Church for three years. And let me see in the heart of Ray Ortland, not Ray Ortland Jr., our buddy in Nashville, but his dad, Ray Ortland, my pastor, a man who exuded the spirit of Paul when he looked out on his flock and said, my joy, my crown of exultation. Ten years later, there was another moment of crisis as I stood at my writing table late at night in October of 1979. The issue was, would I remain a professor at Bethel College teaching biblical studies or would I resign and look for a pastorate? One of the things God was doing in those days was giving me a deeper love for the church. The gathered, growing, ministering body of people that meet week in and week out and move into the likeness of Christ. Teaching had its joys. It's a great calling. But that night, another passion triumphed. And over the next months, God led me to Bethlehem Baptist Church. It's been over 30 years at the time of this writing. If I allow myself, the tears come fairly easily when I think about 
what these people mean to me. They know, I hope, that my great passion is to gain Christ. And unless I am mistaken, they also know that I live for the furtherance and joy of their faith. And it's the aim of my writing and preaching to show that these two aims are one. I gain more of Christ in one converted sinner and one growing saint than in a hundred ordinary chores. To say that Christ is my joy and Bethlehem Baptist Church is my joy is not double talk. Cornerstone is my joy. Never think for a minute there's no future for God's church. And may God give us all what he gave Dr. Piper, a deeper love and a deeper passion for his church. It's in times like these that, that we need to be filled afresh with the Spirit. We need to recapture a compelling vision for the church. Satan is at work. And he's trying to destroy the gospel. He is attacking the church. He wants to get the church off mission. He wants the church to be seduced by the world. He wants us to think like the world and behave like the world and love what the world loves. He wants to get us away from God's word. He wants to destroy us. He hates the church. We love the church and we need the church. And the world needs the church. The world needs the gospel. And this message this morning is hopefully to give you a compelling vision of the church, to rebuild lost faith and hope in the church, to encourage you to invest your life like never before in the church, to turn your attention to God's word, to give your life, to give your best to his family, to what he is doing. There is a future for the church. There is a need for the church. The world needs the church. You need the church. I need the church. It's central to what God is doing. Let us in these days, in these crazy days of social unrest, in a pandemic, we can't even gather together. Let us today not lose our passion for God and for his church. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Lord, I pray that you would impart to us a compelling vision of the church. Teach us the truth about the church found in your word. And Lord, May we have fresh love for your church. May we recognize our need for our church. May we never neglect the church. We, may we never put our interests above the church. For your glory alone, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.